Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Thursday, October 29th. In today's news, Hurricane Zeta roars inland after slamming New Orleans. President Trump formalizes one of the most sweeping public land rollbacks in American history. And Democrats in Pennsylvania and North Carolina claim key wins at the Supreme Court. But first, the big idea. Russian-speaking cyber criminals in recent days have launched a coordinated attack targeting U.S. hospitals, already stressed by the coronavirus pandemic, with ransomware that analysts worry could lead to fatalities. In the space of 24 hours beginning Monday, six hospitals from California to New York have been hit by the Ryok ransomware, which encrypts data on computer systems, forcing the hospitals in some cases to disrupt patient care and cancel non-critical surgeries. Ellen Nakashima and Jay Green report that the criminals have demanded a ransom ranging upward of $1 million to unlock each system. And some hospitals have paid. The FBI, Department of Homeland Security, and Department of Health and Human Services have issued an emergency alert to all healthcare providers in America, warning them of the grave threat. A woman in Germany died last month when the hospital she went to for emergency care turned her away because it had suffered a similar ransomware attack. She died en route to another facility. These sneak attacks by the Russians have shut down some procedures at Sky Lakes Medical Center in Klamath Falls, Oregon. The hospital is unable to offer cancer treatments that are computer-controlled. The attack has curbed diagnostic imaging as well. Doctors and nurses have turned to paper for patient records because their electronic system is offline. Sonoma Valley Hospital in California was also infected. Likewise, St. Lawrence Health System in Potsdam, New York, was taken out Monday. The hospital had to disconnect its computer systems to prevent the malware from spreading. In a more chilling development, the New York Times is reporting that these are the same Russian hackers who American intelligence officials and researchers fear could sow mayhem around next week's elections. These Russians, believed to be based in Moscow and St. Petersburg, have been trading a list of more than 400 hospitals in America that they plan to target. Alex Holden, the founder of Hold Security, shared that information with the FBI. This is obviously a scary moment. And last night, a hacker released election data from Georgia's Hall County after a ransom they demanded from officials was not paid. Officials are going out of their way to emphasize the security of election systems in efforts to reassure voters following revelations of foreign meddling. Against that backdrop, our country continues to experience record numbers of COVID cases and hospitalizations. Officials in Colorado, Idaho, Massachusetts, and Texas yesterday imposed new restrictions on schools, businesses, and social gatherings. Although this has been a highly politicized pandemic, some of the restrictions are arising with no regard to local political inclinations. Liberal-leaning El Paso has imposed a nightly curfew, while conservative-leaning Coeur d'Alene in Idaho passed a mask mandate. In Massachusetts, a major spike in cases has prompted Boston public schools to suspend in-person learning. A fresh forecast published overnight by modelers at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia warned that the virus is spreading at exponential rates across at least half of our states and that only Hawaii will not see a rise in hospitalizations during the next four weeks. A secret federal government briefing document circulated to top officials and obtained by The Washington Post rates every county in America by levels of concern, and it notes that you could drive today from the Canadian border to Mississippi without exiting one of the sustained hotspot counties. 
Another forecast from the University of Washington's Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation projects that by November 11th, our country is on track to surpass 1,000 deaths again a day from COVID. The same projection says the country is on track to exceed 2,000 deaths a day by December 28th. These numbers are slightly less grim than the model's projection from a few weeks ago, but they still envision close to 400,000 cumulative deaths from the virus in America by February 1st. Infectious disease experts emphasize that the future of the pandemic is not fixed. Human behavior is the key variable. But the models also show that the current rates of infection, already at record levels, averaging more than 70,000 new cases a day and sometimes higher, are likely to only increase. Tony Fauci, the government's top infectious disease expert, said last night for the first time that the federal government should consider instituting a national mask mandate. Here in D.C., the region just hit an 11-week high for new infections. And my colleagues are reporting in today's newspaper that senior White House officials issued an order to the CDC to stand down when it came to tracing and containing the outbreak that impacted the president. Several sources, including some on the record, tell my colleagues Desmond Butler, Tom Hamburger, Lena Sun, and Sarah Kaplan that the White House called off efforts to get to the bottom of the outbreak after the September 26th super spreader event in the Rose Garden, and they refused. They refused to allow the sequencing of the genomes of virus samples from infected individuals. They also blocked officials from sharing vital information with local public health authorities in Indiana, Minnesota, and New Jersey that could have helped slow the spread of the outbreak. The genetic analysis in particular would have revealed shared mutations that linked cases in Washington and other affected communities. Had the administration done such an investigation, it would know whether the infections among five senior aides to Vice President Pence that emerged over the weekend bore the same genetic signature as earlier cases at the White House. That could indicate whether the virus was circulating among administration officials for several weeks or had slipped through a second time past the infection control measures that are in place. White House spokesman Brian Morgenstern claimed in response that it's unknowable how the president became infected with COVID. But Tom Frieden, the former CDC director, countered, quote, of course it's knowable. It's only unknowable if you don't want to know. Let me wrap up the big idea by telling you about a Maryland family that battled COVID at the same time as Trump. Remember when the president climbed the steps of the White House balcony after he left the hospital, took off his mask, saluted no one in particular, and then urged Americans not to fear this disease? Well, at that exact moment, the exact moment, 30 miles away, Carlton Coates Jr. sat in an Annapolis funeral home, staring at the casket that contained the body of his older sister. Carol Coates got COVID at the same time as the president, but instead of a Swede at Walter Reed, the 46-year-old black teacher self-isolated in the basement of her family's home. And instead of the experimental cocktail of antibodies that Trump got, she received get-well cards from her fifth-grade students. Carol taught at a school just nine miles from the White House, but her illness unfolded in what seemed like a different universe than the one the, the president described. Trump said during that triumphal homecoming, quote, don't let it take over your lives. Yet for many people of color in the United States, the coronavirus has already taken the life of someone they loved. It would take even more from Carlton Coates. Michael Miller reports that Carlton's phone buzzed during his sister's funeral. But the 43-year-old truck driver ignored it. 
It was only when he returned home and saw people gathered in his driveway that he knew something else had gone wrong. As they stepped out of the car, his fiancée pulled him aside, and she said, I hate to tell you this, but your mom passed away too. The coronavirus crept into that pretty house with blue shutters in Anne Arundel County, and it killed the two women that Carlton had known the longest. His mom, Dale, was one of two black receptionists at a predominantly white retirement home in Annapolis called Sunrise Senior Living. She kept working, despite her worries about falling ill. Now she's dead. The Reverend Stephen Tillett, the pastor at Asbury Broadneck United Methodist Church, where Dale was a member, told Michael, quote, As the saying goes, when white folks catch a cold, black folks catch pneumonia. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar. Number one. Hurricane Zeta made landfall in Louisiana last night as a powerful Category 2, intensifying right up until landfall, defying earlier forecasts for a substantially weaker storm. Shortly after crossing the coast, Zeta slammed New Orleans, its eye moving directly over the city, cutting power to more than 80% of residents. The storm unleashed wind gusts over 100 miles an hour in both coastal Louisiana and Mississippi, and the high winds cut power to more than 800,000 customers. Coastal Mississippi has been subject to a storm surge that raised water levels nine feet above normal dry land at the coast, resulting in severe inundation and flooding. Zeta is now poised to race through central Alabama, northern Georgia, and then the mid-Atlantic, covering 1,250 miles through Thursday evening. Damaging winds could stretch into interior parts of Georgia, where gusts of 50 miles per hour are forecast today in Atlanta that could impact early voting. Number two, Trump yesterday opened up more than half of Alaska's Tongass National Forest to logging and other forms of development. A notice posted in the Federal Register strips protections that have safeguarded one of the world's largest intact temperate rainforests for two decades. As of today, it is now legal for logging companies to build roads and cut and remove timber throughout more than 9.3 million pristine acres of forest. The forest features old-growth strands of red and yellow cedar, Sitka spruce, and western hemlock. For years, federal and academic scientists have identified Tongass as an ecological oasis that serves as a massive carbon sink while providing key habitat for wildlife like Pacific salmon and trout, black-tailed deer, and myriad other species. In fact, the forest boasts the highest density of brown bears in North America, and its trees some of which are between 300 and 1,000 years old, absorb at least 8% of all the carbon stored in the entire lower 48's forests combined. While tropical rainforests are the lungs of the planet, the Tongass is the lungs of North America. This is America's last climate sanctuary. That's how Dominic De La Sala, the chief scientist with the Earth Island Institute's Wild Heritage Project, put it in an interview with my colleague Juliet Eilperin, who won the Pulitzer for us this year for writing about the impact of climate change on Alaska. While Trump has repeatedly touted his commitment to planting trees through what he calls a one trillion tree initiative, invoking it on the campaign trail as recently as last week, his administration has sought to expand logging in Alaska and in the Pacific Northwest since day one. Federal judges have blocked several of these plans because they were blatantly illegal, but Trump has been packing the courts with judges who are hostile to environmental regulations. 
So that may not continue. And the Trump administration tried carefully in this case to dot the I's and cross the T's to stop opening the forest from being overturned. Number three, last night the Supreme Court allowed extended periods for receiving mail-in ballots in Pennsylvania and North Carolina. They declined to disturb lower court decisions that allow Pennsylvania officials to receive ballots cast by Election Day and received within three days, and a ruling by North Carolina's election board that set a grace period of nine days. In both cases, the Republican Party and state legislators had opposed the extensions, and Trump has railed on the campaign trail against the mail-in vote. Three conservative justices, Clarence Thomas, Sam Alito, and Neil Gorsuch, objected in both cases. The newest justice, Amy Coney Barrett, did not participate in either case, but her decision did not signal a blanket recusal in election cases involving Trump. Instead, she indicated through a court spokeswoman that the cases needed prompt decisions and that having started work on Tuesday, she didn't have time to fully review the briefs. At least 73.3 million people have now voted nationwide. That's 53% of the total number of votes cast in 2016. In bad news for people trying to vote, though, more than 42 million of the 92 million mail ballots that have been requested by voters nationally have not been returned as the window closes for USPS delivery, prompting a flurry of dire warnings from election officials from coast to coast that ballots sent via mail from this point forward may not arrive in time to be counted. An internal USPS report leaked to my colleague Jacob Bogage showed distressingly poor delivery rates in swing states with numbers falling below 60%. And get this. A new report from the Center for Responsive Politics shows that $14 billion will be spent by candidates and outside groups in the 2020 elections. $14 billion. That's more than twice as expensive as the 2016 election. In fact, more money will be spent on the 2020 campaigns than the previous two presidential cycles combined. And that's The Daily 202 for Thursday, October 29th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Holman. Stay safe. I'll talk to you tomorrow. The Daily 202 is brought to you by Cleveland Clinic and the new podcast, Caring for Tomorrow. I'm Joan London, the host of the series. Please join us as we explore the challenges and solutions that are defining the future of healthcare. Look for us wherever you get your podcasts.